Section 12 of The Evil Guest. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. The Evil Guest by J. Sheridan Lefanu. Section 12. Some weeks passed by, and perhaps we shall best consult our reader's ease by substituting for the formal precision of narrative a few extracts from the letters which Rhoda wrote to her brother still at Cambridge. These will convey her own impressions respecting the scenes and personages among whom she was now to move. The house and place are much neglected, and the former in some parts suffered almost to go to decay. The windows broken in the last storm, nearly eight months ago, they tell me, are still unmended, and the roof, too, unrepaired. The pretty garden near the well among the lime-trees, that our darling mother was so fond of, is all but obliterated with weeds and grass, and since my first visit I have not had heart to go near it again. All the old servants are gone, new faces everywhere." I have been obliged several times, through fear of offending my father, to join the party in the drawing-room. You may conceive what I felt at seeing Mademoiselle in the place once filled by our dear mamma. I was so choked with sorrow, bitterness, and indignation, and my heart so palpitated, that I could not speak, and I believe they thought I was going to faint. Mademoiselle looked very angry, but my father, pretending to show me, heaven knows what, from the window, led me to it, and the air revived me a little. Mademoiselle, for I cannot call her by her new name, is altered a good deal, more, however, in the character than in the contour of her face and figure. Certainly, however, she has grown a good deal fuller, and her colour is higher, and whether it is fancy or not, I cannot say, but certainly it seems to me that the expression of her face has acquired something habitually lowering and malicious, and which I know not how inspires me with an undefinable dread. She has, however, been tolerably civil to me, but seems contemptuous and rude to my father, and I am afraid he is very wretched. I have seen them exchange such looks, and overheard such intemperate and even appalling altercations between them, as indicate something worse and deeper than ordinary ill-will. This makes me additionally wretched, especially as I cannot help thinking that some mysterious cause enables her to frighten and tyrannize over my poor father. I sometimes think he absolutely detests her. Yet, though fiery altercations ensue, he ultimately submits to this bad and cruel woman. Oh, my dear Charles, you have no idea of the shocking, or rather the terrifying, reproaches I have heard interchanged between them, as I accidentally passed the room where they were sitting, such terms as have sent me to my room, feeling as if I were in a horrid dream, and made me cry and tremble for hours after I got there. I see my father very seldom, and when I do he takes but little notice of me. Poor Willet, you know, returned with me. She accompanies me in my walks, and is constantly dropping hints about Mademoiselle, from which I know not what to gather. I often fear that my father has some secret and mortal ailment. He generally looks ill, and sometimes quite wretchedly. He came twice lately to my room, I think to speak to me on some matter of importance, but he said only a sentence or two, and even these broken and incoherent. He seemed unable to command spirits for the interview, and indeed he grew so agitated and strange that I was alarmed and felt greatly relieved when he left me. I do not, you see, disguise my feelings, dear Charles. I do not conceal from you the melancholy and anguish of my present situation. How intensely I long for your promised arrival! I have not a creature to whom I can say one word in confidence, except poor Willet, who, though very good-natured and really dear to me, is yet far from being a companion." i sometimes think my intense anxiety to see you here is almost selfish for i know you will feel as acutely as i do the terrible change observable everywhere but i cannot help longing for your return dear charles and counting the days and the very hours till you arrive 
be cautious in writing to me not to say anything which you would not wish mademoiselle to see for willet tells me that she knows that she often examines and even intercepts the letters that arrive and though willet may be mistaken and i hope she is yet it is better that you should be upon your guard ever since i heard this i have brought my letters to the post-office myself instead of leaving them with the rest upon the hall table and you know it is a long walk for me i go to church every sunday and take willet along with me no one from this seems to think of doing so but ourselves i see the mervyns there mrs mervyn is particularly kind and i know that she wishes to offer me an asylum at newton park and you cannot think with how much tenderness and delicacy she conveys the wish but i dare not hint the subject to my father and earnestly as i desire it i could not but feel that i should go there not to visit but to reside and so even in this in many respects delightful project is mingled a bitter apprehension of dependence something so humiliating that kindly and delicately as the offer is made i could not bring myself to embrace it i have a great deal to say to you and long to see you these extracts will enable the reader to form a tolerably accurate idea of the general state of affairs at grey forest some particulars must however be added marston continued to be the same gloomy and joyless being as heretofore sometimes moody and apathetic sometimes wayward and even savage but never for a moment at ease never social an isolated disdainful ruined man one day as rhoda sat and read under the shade of some closely interwoven evergreens in a lonely and sheltered part of the neglected pleasure-grounds with her honest maid willet in attendance she was surprised by the sudden appearance of her father who stood unexpectedly before her though his attitude for some time was fixed his countenance was troubled with anxiety and pain and his sunken eyes rested upon her with a fiery and fretted gaze he seemed lost in thought for a while and then touching willet sharply on the shoulder said abruptly go i shall call you when you are wanted walk down that alley and as he spoke he indicated with his walking-cane the course he desired her to take when the maid was sufficiently distant to be quite out of hearing marston sat down beside rhoda upon the bench and took her hand in silence his grasp was cold and alternately relaxed and contracted with an agitated uncertainty while his eyes were fixed upon the ground and he seemed meditating how to open the conversation at last as if suddenly awaking from a fearful reverie he said you correspond with charles yes sir she replied with the respectful formality prescribed by the usages of the time we correspond regularly ay ay and pray when did you last hear from him he continued about a month since sir she replied ah and and was there nothing strange nothing nothing mysterious and menacing in his letter come come you know what i speak of he stopped abruptly and stared in her face with an agitated gaze no indeed sir there was not anything of the kind she replied i have been greatly shocked i may say incensed said marston excitedly by a passage in his last letter to me not that it says anything specific but-but it amazes me it enrages me he again checked himself and rhoda much surprised and even shocked said stammeringly i'm i'm sure sir that that dear charles would not intentionally say or do anything that could could offend you ah as to that i believe so too but it is not with him i am indignant no no poor charles i believe he is as you say disposed to conduct himself as a son ought to respectfully and obediently yes yes charles is very well but i fear he is leading a bad life notwithstanding a very bad life he is becoming subject to influences which never visit or torment the good believe me he is 
Marston shook his head and muttered to himself with a look of almost craven anxiety, and then whispered to his daughter, "'Just read this, and then tell me is it not so. Read it, read it, and pronounce.' As he thus spoke, he placed in her hand the letter of which he had spoken, and with the passage to which he invited her attention folded down. It was to the following effect. "'I cannot tell you how shocked I have been by a piece of scandal, as I must believe it, conveyed to me in an anonymous letter, and which is of so very delicate a nature that without your special command I should hesitate to pain you by its recital. I trust it may be utterly false. Indeed, I assume it to be so. It is enough to say that it is of a very distressing nature, and affects the lady, Mademoiselle Le Barat, whom you have recently honoured with your hand. Now, you see?' cried Marston, with a shuddering fierceness, as she returned the letter with a blanched cheek and trembling hand. "'Now you see it all. Are you stupid? The stamp of the cloven hoof, eh?' Rhoda, unable to gather his meaning, but at the same time with a heart full and trembling very much, stammered a few frightened words and became silent. "'It is he, I tell you, that does it all, and if Charles were not living an evil life, he could not have spread his nets for him,' said Marston vehemently. "'He can't go near anything good.' but like a scoundrel he knows where to find a congenial nature, and when he does, he has skill enough to practice upon it. I know him well, and his arts and his smiles, aye, and his scowls and his grins, too. He goes like his master up and down and to and fro upon the earth for ceaseless mischief. There is not a friend of mine he can get hold of, but he whispered in his ear some damned slander of me. He is drawing them all into a common understanding against me, and he takes a natural pleasure in telling me how the thing goes on, how one after the other he has converted my friends into conspirators and libelers, to blast my character and take my life, and now the monster essays to lure my children into the hellish confederation. "'Who is he, father? Who is he?' faltered Rhoda. "'You never saw him,' retorted Marston sternly. "'No, no, you can't have seen him, and you probably never will. But if he does come here again, don't listen to him.' He is a half-fiend and half-idiot, and no good comes of his mouthing and muttering. Avoid him, I warn you, avoid him. Let me see. How shall I describe him? Let me see. You remember, you remember Berkeley, Sir Winston Berkeley? Well, he greatly resembles that dead villain. He has all the same grins and shrugs and monkey airs, and his face and figure are alike. But he is a grimed, ragged, wasted piece of sin, little better than a beggar, a shrunken, malignant libel on the human shape. Avoid him, I tell you, avoid him. He is steeped in lies and poison, like the very serpent that betrayed us. Beware of him, I say, for if he once gains your ear, he will delude you, spite of all your vigilance. He will make you his accomplice, and therefore, inevitably, there is nothing but mortal and implacable hatred between us. Frightened at this wild language, Rhoda did not answer, but looked up in his face in silence. A fearful transformation was there, a scowl so livid and maniacal that her very senses seemed leaving her with terror. Perhaps the sudden alteration observable in her countenance, as the spectacle so unexpectedly encountered her, recalled him to himself, for he added hurriedly, and in a tone of gentler meaning, "'Rhoda, Rhoda, watch and pray. My daughter, my child, keep your heart pure, and nothing bad can approach you for ill. No, no, you are good, and the good need not fear.' Suddenly Marston burst into tears, as he ended this sentence, and wept long and convulsively. She did not dare to speak, or even to move, but after a while he ceased, apparently uneasy, half ashamed and half angry, and looking with a horrified and bewildered glance into her face, he said, "'Rhoda, child, wh- what have I said? My God, what have I been saying? Did I—do I look ill? Oh, Rhoda!' "'Rhoda, may you never feel this!' 
He turned away from her without awaiting her answer, and walked away with the appearance of intense agitation, as if to leave her. He turned again, however, and with a face pallid and sunken as death, approached her slowly. "'Rhoda,' said he, "'don't tell what I have said to any one. Don't, I conjure you, even to Charles. I speak too much at random, and say more than I mean, a foolish rambling habit, so do not repeat one word of it, not one word to any living mortal. You and I, Rhoda, must have our little secrets.' He ended with an attempt at a smile, so obviously painful and fear-stricken, that as he walked hurriedly away, the astounded girl burst into a bitter flood of tears. What was, what could be, the meaning of the shocking scene she had then been forced to witness? She dared not answer the question. Yet one ghastly doubt haunted her like her shadow, a suspicion that the malignant and hideous light of madness was already glaring upon his mind. As, leaning upon the arm of her astonished attendant, she retracted her steps, the trees, the flowers, the familiar hall-door, the echoing passages, every object that met her eye, seemed strange and unsubstantial, and she gliding on among them in a horrid dream. End of section 12